Now from Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. The summer solstice is upon us, and it's that special time of year when we put on our best flowery outfits, throw our elders from a mountain, put our ex-boyfriends in animal costumes, and light the house on fire. (laughs) Jack, darling, how are you? I am doing fantastic. I love that introduction. It is that time of year. Yes, it is. Me too. I'm feeling like really good. So hopefully this uh, this vibe lasts and just continues through the season. I think some elders should be thrown from the mountain. What do you think? I think in many ways we're actually doing that, just not literally, kind of like symbolically, if you know what I, I mean. I think we should do it literally. What do you think about <laughs> that? <laughs> hey, I'll double down. If you're going to do it, then I'm right there with you. I'm like, move along with the progress or get thrown off a mountain. I think things would work much better in society if we operated that way. How millennial of you. I know. <laughs> and I also am for taking dirty ex-boyfriends and putting them in bear costumes and lighting them on fire. I think that's perfectly okay, too. Well, what's a girl to do once they've outlived their use? Do you know yeah, what I mean? I know. Speaking of Midsommar, you know, we've never talked about Midsommar on the podcast. You like that movie, right? Of course. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, I think so, too. I really enjoyed it. People were torn on that one, you know, in the daytime and all. It was really controversial. Yeah, I know. No, no. I thought it was genius. I mean, we could probably do a whole episode just just around Midsommar. I just think we should wear those uh, big flower outfits. I don't know if you noticed, but A24 did a, a a charity auction recently where they auctioned off that dress from the movie for like, I, was a, I don't want to say how much because I, I think I'll get it wrong, but it was quite a lot. Wow. I mean, I can see how like Hollywood paraphernalia and stuff like that could definitely fetch top dollar uh, specifically or something like that because it was such a groundbreaking horror uh, flick, in my opinion. But they needed to update those if if the boulets are going to wear them. I mean, they definitely need to like kind of change the color scheme away from the sunflowers and maybe do something a little more deadly nightshade, like just something that's a little more us, wouldn't you say? I think so. And who knows, maybe you'll see it on season four of the Blade Brothers Dragula. Ooh, exciting. Uh, Speaking (laughs) of shows and our shows and stuff, we just got done with our second digital drag show that we did with Stage It and PEG. This was a follow up to our Theater Macabre show, which we did like last month, which was really celebrated and won an award for the most outrageous show in the fest. So following up to that was kind of a tall order, in my opinion, but I think we knocked it out of the park with our Boulay Brothers Horror Picture Show. I really enjoyed doing it. Did you have a good time? Oh my God, it was so much fun. I really love that format. I kind of just want to keep putting him out. I know. I'm kind of getting addicted to them as well, but I think maybe we should redirect our energies onto the show and the spinoffs because... That's going to need to get started soon one way or the other. Yeah. And I think it was just such a blip in time. Like only a certain number of people got to see it. So I want to let everybody know and our listeners and fans know that we are preparing a package to release both of those digital shows, kind of like a compilation through our website, BoulayBrothersDragula.com, where people can buy a ticket and watch both shows. And it's being titled The Boulay Brothers Digital Double Feature. Yeah, I think it's the best recording of both shows. And I just want to specify that it is a screening of the show. We're not going to be just saying sitting here ready all day and whenever you want to log in, we just oh, finish those real quick. So, oh, oh, <laughs> it, is free, 
it's pre-recorded. Well, a lot of people don't understand. Like some of the people didn't know that some of that was live or some what was pre-recorded, and so you know they didn't they didn't get that you had to watch it at that time or you couldn't see it. So yeah, I think this is a good option for people to be able to tune in that weren't able to see it the first time. Yeah, and there was a lot of regret online for people that missed it and later realized that oh my God, it's gone and I can't watch it again, which I kind of enjoyed because it shows yeah. how much they love and missed the idea of seeing the show. That's why we decided to release it so that people that missed it could see it. Yeah, so you can check it out, everyone at home, if you want to watch the Belay Brothers double feature. It'll be, again, at BelayBrothersDragula.com. Um, I think we should just jump right in and pull in our news correspondent and get to it. What do you say? Our partner in crime, Ms. Ian DeVogler. Hello, ladies. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm wonderful. How are you today? Good. Uh, any more night terrors? Are you adjusting to life in the mountains? Um, definitely a night terror every night. Um, <laughs> not adjusting very well. I think there's probably a stalker in the neighborhood and or a family of vampires that lives next door. But who knows? Maybe that's well, me. Listen, by night terror, we actually mean things that are haunting your dreams, not your boyfriend who's like cloistered up there with you. <laughs> well, he's definitely uh, the one holding the knife these days. <laughs> so, um, I want to get right to it because there's a topic in particular that I really want to talk about, uh, which is that they're remaking Scream. Yes. <laughs> so, I kind of thought we could get Ian to catch everybody up to date on the details about that, and then we can chat a little bit about it. So, Ian, why don't you take it away? Thank you, Drac. So, Scream 5 is confirmed as being in development. We don't have any official word if it's a sequel or a reboot or a remake, but fans are super excited nonetheless. Uh, David Arquette is returning as Dewey, and Nev Campbell is apparently in talks to return as Sidney Prescott. The film is going to be directed by Matthew Bettinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillette, also known as Radio Silence, who directed the 2019 horror comedy Ready or Not. Mm. And the original writer, Kevin Williamson, helped develop the script and is working on the project as an executive producer. So I can't wait. Yeah, that's exciting. So good. No Wes Craven, but still. Ready or Not was fun, though. Like, I, I'd like to see Scream kind of put through that kaleidoscope. I wonder, you know, what, what that product's going to look like. Yeah, I know we all saw Ready or Not together. I was not the biggest fan of it, but I'm excited too. Like when I think about the original Scream, it's hilarious, like in a really kind of dark, super dark way, but I, I love it. No, for sure. It's kind of stupid. It's, it's silly and stupid, <laughs> but it's also like ridiculous. I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound corny, but it's kind of, it's very smart in its own right too, because it took everything and all the satires from all horror cliches and, became self-aware about it and basically created a new franchise and riffed on it for, you know, sequel after sequel after sequel. And it was amazing. It was like so entertaining, but it could be dumb and very intelligently done at the same time. Totally. I felt like part of the the magic of it was that it wasn't afraid to be dumb. Like, I feel like a lot of horror movies, when they inject a bit of comedy, they're still living in the world of this is a serious horror movie, but here's a joke. But Scream kind of wears its its references right on its sleeve and it says, this is a dumb joke. This is a Wes Craven joke. This is a John Carpenter joke. And it just, it's so magical. Yeah, for sure. It really reignited the whole horror genre at the time when Scream came out. I remember it being like a total phenomenon. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but it also inspired some real life craziness that happened. But maybe we'll talk about that a little later in the podcast. Yo, I'm going to try to remind you because I, I, I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about, but... Um, yeah, so many stars are part of that franchise too. Uh, it, it was almost like watching, you know, who's going to make the next cameo, who's going to be like this exciting character. And then they were killed off, uh, kind of quickly too. 
What was y'all's favorite moments from this from all the screen movies? Um, I can just say my favorite line because I kind of rewatched a little bit very recently, and it's going to be from Aunt Jackie. Who, she has my favorite line in all of them, and I'm not <laughs> even going to call her Lori Metcalf or Billy's mother because we're going to address <laughs> we're going to address her as she should be addressed, which is Aunt Jackie, and she said oh. <laughs> she said something like, um, "My motive isn't as '90s as Mickey's; it's just good old fashioned revenge." <laughs> I just I love yes. that level of self awareness. Totally. For me, it's probably, and I I think this is probably the softball answer, but the opening of Scream with Drew Barrymore, I think is just so genius. Like her character, I mean, that's, that is 100% me (laughs) in the suburbs. The, The killer calls and she's like, oh, hey, no, I'm just hanging out making popcorn, watching a movie. I'm like, girl, hang up. No, but I love it. It's iconic, truly. Well, oh, totally. I have said this. I told this to you recently. I feel like you, your person in real life, is someone that walked out of the Scream movies. Like, I don't know what it is, but it's something <laughs> about your look and your mannerisms. I'm like, Ian belongs in the Scream franchise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I definitely went to Woodsboro High School. Uh, and I, I'm probably going to be the murderer in Scream 5. We'll see. See, I heard that it was going to be a remake not a sequel oh yeah I, i've seen a couple of different things um but I, I was looking it up and i couldn't find you know one definitive answer to is it a remake is it a reboot is it a sequel what is it um i think nev campbell kind of hinted that it might be a sequel but then again she hasn't even officially confirmed she's gonna do it mm. um but i I can't wait. Like I rewatched the original the other day and it just reminded me of how much I loved it. And even scream four, which I think is kind of a mess is, is amazing. I think scream five is going to be great. Well, you do love a mess. <laughs> Speaking of scream, our next guest is an actress, activist, author, model, director, and singer. We're thrilled. She's here with us today. Please welcome the iconic Rose McGowan. Rose, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Drac and Swan, for having me. Fabulous Boulet brothers. Here we are. Oh, our pleasure. Are you in the United States right now? Are you traveling? Where Where have you decided to quarantine? I'm living in Mexico. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I'm kind of done with the U.S. I'm not... I'll be honest, I was never the biggest fan. And uh, I got sent there when I was 10. And I've done my time there. And it's a beautiful place, but I do feel even without COVID, you know, the political situation is giving like everybody stomach cancer to a certain degree, I feel. And I was just like, I'm just, I don't want to sign up for this. I got you. Do you feel like it's less stressful where you are now? I mean, other than the specter of death outside, which, you know, in Mexico, in America, you know, the news is lying to you, but here there's not even really any, who knows? So it's just kind of a bubble, but in a way... Like, is it better to have too much information that you can do nothing about or no information and just stay safe with masks and gloves? All right. So let's jump into a little bit of work stuff. So you've done tons of movie and TV roles and you tend to get cast uh, in these bad girl type roles. And, you know, we were curious, like in your day to day life, are are you anything like the characters you play or are you just good at playing that type of character? I'm just really good. She's like, I'm character. I'm just really good, period. No, I've stopped there. Um, no, I'm, I guess I'm quite good at playing those characters. I think, especially like in Jawbreaker, that one was such a funny kind of cross between Betty Davis 
and a movie called Leave Her to Heaven with Jean Tierney. The lead actress in that movie pushes Timmy, her stepson, who's in a wheelchair off a cliff. And the husband is like, darling, why? Darling, we need more time together. Like, bye, Timmy. And, uh, ah! and, Hilarious. And it was just like, I realized, you know, with that character, I was like, it was my homage. You know, Courtney Shane was very much my tip of the hat to like the kind of 1940s movies with the bad women that always got punished if they smoked a cigarette they had to die if they had sex they had to die those are the rules there was something called a haze yeah. in hollywood and they well tip of the hat tip yeah. of the wheelchair whichever you know tip of the wheelchair but you know that's okay but she had to die at the end of course because <clears throat> she killed timmy yeah like, i don't think that's fair well, you- just kidding <laughs> you've created you've created uh, these iconic characters yourself now though that people look you know look at and get inspired by you know i was curious if there's any characters that you've played that you would like to revisit and if so which one i would, i think i definitely would want to revisit courtney from jawbreaker and i pitched it to darren mm. but he's not interested but it's also i don't act so it's like fine that he's not Darren Stein, sorry, the director of Jawbreaker and writer, but I thought Courtney should come out of a mental institution and go to Calabasas or Hidden Hills where the Kardashians live and all those kind of people and have like the clique that she was with in high school that she ruled over, have them all be like kind of rich moms now in that area and like like they're on a reality show and she just comes out of the mental institution and just destroys I think oh, every I am so here for that. Hello, movie. like where's every queen and I queer from coast amazing. to coast would be watching that show for sure. I would watch oh that my God, show. That's I'm like, I want to see Courtney come out of the mental institution. I want to see her like try to get her click back and then do all these power dynamics <clears throat> in that really bizarre alternate universe, like the Kardashian world. Pretty much, I just think that would be hilarious to let her loose in this future. Like she would never have seen an iPhone. She would never have like you know, being in an institution this whole time, she would miss this whole like internet, Instagram, all that stuff. Oh, sure. And, I mean, internet was there, but not Instagram, not Facebook and the whole social media thing. And right. for her to like start ruling that and maybe destroy everybody's life through social media, would be quite funny. Yeah. Think of all the ways, wow. the new ways that she could terrorize people with exactly. social. Like. <laughs> I'm going to talk to Darren about that yeah, today. I'm like, you need to listen to her. <laughs> I think it's really smart. It, it might is. be I love people it. are like, what great. would you come back to acting for? Like, if this director or that director, I'm like, you know, I played other people for more of my life than I got to be myself. And I've really reached a point where I'm like, I like my own mind better than usually what they, you know, because when you say dialogue, you put have to on put you. your own thoughts away and put them away. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the character's thoughts. Um, and I just kind of reached a point where I just want to be me. It's more fun. But at the same time, Courtney's so delicious. And I do like being evil. <laughs> same. Oh God. I wanna same. be evil. I wanna be bad. <laughs> Go Earth. So you you know, so between Scream and Charm, like you mentioned, you you seem to live comfortably in this world of like horror and like the supernatural. Uh, do you have like an attraction to that type of stuff or those type of projects? No. Really? Not not there must be something That's about you. Part. I don't know what it is. Especially supernatural. I'm really not that interested. Um, Mm. I don't get it. I don't, I think my own life has been so bizarre that, and I think supernatural things and, and a lot of times horror movies, I think I find, especially supernatural is people that live a more, um, I don't know how to say this, like a more traditional life, I guess. And it's kind of escapism for them. 
Or for me, mm-hmm. if someone showed up and like threw a fireball at me, I'd be like, oh, hey, what's up? It would just be normal in my life at this point. Some extra weirdness. Let's just throw you into the mix. So it doesn't, it's not enough usually fantasy to take me away. I do like like some fantasy things for sure, but I like psychological horror more than I like bloodbath horror. I mm. like, I like the mind. I like me- thinking about gaslighting and messing with people's minds and kind of twisting them and always being like, even in scream, I wore, I, I chose my own clothes and I wore like half of my own clothes for that character, but I chose this skirt. I went shopping the night before um, we fil- started filming and I had to film the garage scene. And so I got this mini skirt that had like this, like colored cubes that swirled into a point basically where your vagina and your bottom is. So I knew they were going to be filming on my butt when I leaned over to go into the fridge to get the beer to throw it at Mr. Ghostface. So I was like, that was my version of being subversive. I was like, follow the little path right to the hole. Just like, (laughs) 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 come on children watching this. Where does it go? (laughs) Oh, I love it. The subtle psychology of the terror of Rose McGowan. Like weird, like, weird little levels of things that like people that were really watching would catch. So what do do you think that they're talking about? They're talking about uh, remaking scream. Any interest or chance we would see you there or no? No, because they're doing it through Miramax and I think it's not, I I just would not want any association with uh, that company, not even under different people. Got you. There's no reason for me. And it's bad. Like I've lost so much because of that kind of stuff. And frankly, the public has too. Yeah. Well, those are, yeah, it'd be great to see you in it. I'm sure everyone would be excited, but uh, those type of politics, that kind of stuff is so behind so many walls, like so many firewalls that I think the public and people outside of like TV and film don't don't even realize exist. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get it. And it's like a really, it sucks because you can't, you're like, look, um, this studio decided to resurrect a despicable rapist name, his parents' name, but it's his company. It was his famous company. Why on earth would I want that name, like with my name appearing underneath it on the screen? You know what I mean? Sure. No, of course. Yeah. Let's move into your activism a little bit because you are an instrumental voice in like the Me Too movement. And I think you've inspired so many people um, who are, have survived similar experiences. Um you know, how do you feel about your role in all that kind of like looking back from now? Well, there's, there's really two things to dissect. Me too. Um, what Tarana Burke, uh, the activist created by making that hashtag like 11 years ago, she wrote a, uh, something and said, did this happen to me too? And then Alyssa Milano, my former co-star in Charm popularized it, but that came out about two weeks. The hashtag got popular about two weeks mm-hmm. after the news stories for the New York Times and um, the New Yorker broke. They called it a movement. And I, I think Me Too is a communication tool. Did this happen to you, Me Too? It's shorthand for anybody who's ever gone through anything like that. And before that, there's no way. What are you going to do? Sit next to someone unless you're to know them deep and tell them your deepest secret. Most people just keep it a secret. But sure. with the advent of being able to say, did this happen to you, Me Too? You don't even have to go super deep because you get it. You get each other's pain or it's life or, you know, what they've gone through like that second. But for me, a cultural reset was really about showing people like my book brave that I wrote um, is all about, like I use my stories to show people like, this is really what's happening behind the scenes. These are the people putting the information in your head. 
And this is what you might want to pay attention to when you sit down in front of your Netflix or anything, your brain is open. You're not sitting there looking at it like, oh, maybe this is a bad person that's making this and I don't want their, you know, their thoughts and ideas in my brain. Um, and most people don't know that. And it's, it's 96% men in the Directors Guild of America that make all movies. Might be 95% now. It might have had a 1% increase. But that statistic really hasn't changed since 1946. Hmm. And so that's predominantly white males telling you one point of view. No, there's nothing wrong with that point of view, but it can't be 96% of it. And this sure. kind of thought goes out for the world. And you guys live in Hollywood. You know what kind of people I'm talking about. Certainly. Yeah. A lot of times it seems like uh, if you're going to work in this industry, you have to either put on blinders or be wet, ready to make a lot of enemies quickly. I made a lot of enemies quickly and slowly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You were quoted, I think I read somewhere as saying that the fear of upsetting your family uh, in the past has silenced you. And I was wondering if you could expand on that just to help us understand what you meant by that statement. Yeah, I think this is a common thing for a lot of people because it was not about rape that I was silent. Um, it was more about that I grew up in what's considered a cult or labeled a cult, right? And my mother... When we came back from Italy, where I grew up, and where I was in that utopian commune group thing, uh, religious sect, um, we didn't speak Italian. The second we came to America, it was kind of banned. And then um, there was no mention of what we grew up in. You were never supposed to talk about it, lest it upset mother kind of thing. And finally, I was like, look, if, if this wasn't my choice, I didn't choose to get born into that, but this is my story. I, I was very clear in my book between telling my story and my family's story, because they've all each got their own stories, some of which are maybe sometimes crazier than mine in some ways. But um, it's not my story to tell, but I also have a right to speak for myself. And my mother doesn't really talk to me. But I think she's honestly, she's such a Democrat. She's more mad at me that um, I hate the Democrats. I also hate the Republicans. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I bet you better. No, um, no I, bitch, I hate Audrey, I hate everybody pretty much. <laughs> I pretty much hate everybody in this bullshit power structure that serves no one. But I think we really need to look at the power structure and be like, you know what? Like, why are you a Democrat? What does it do? Why can't we have a third party that wins? This is not working the way it is. It almost feels like the the country could potentially like this could be the beginning of that reality. And I don't know how long it might take, but uh, the idea that maybe neither of these parties are serving the people at large. They're not. I don't want to presume to know how you think, but my impression is that you've had an evolving relationship with the trans community and the idea of feminism. And I was curious where you stand on that topic today. Well, I don't. Uh... I haven't really evolved on the trans issue because I've never had an issue. There's, there's no issue I could have because these have been my people and my friends and my sisters and brothers since I was 13 years old and a runaway taken in by two. Now they would be called 
trans girls or trans teens or trans women, but then they were just called drag queens. Right. Um, right. They raised me. These, these were my mother in place of mother. As far as feminism goes, um, I don't identify as that now. I might be okay. radical, but I'm not. A, I don't like labels. I really fucking don't. Because man, woman, everything that's a label comes with inherent backpacks and suitcases of history that I didn't vote on. Yeah, I noticed that about you. And that, that seems to be a, a trigger for you is when people do try to label you. I was raised very differently from pretty much everybody else. Um, other than the people that grew up in the group I was in. I was raised as a mind experiment. They wanted to see, and I was in there for 10 years, zero to 10. What would it be like if we raised um, this multinational group of kids from baby to however old without mirrors? What would it be like if we never told them they were a boy or girl? And what would it be like if we never told them what race they were? What would happen to them? And And then I got sent to military school like overnight where they put a pink shirt on me. They changed my name from Rosa to Rose. Um, they told me I was a girl and basically here's your straight jacket. Have fun. I think that is a, a good message to end that section of the interview. Okay, on, Cause I do I want to talk about stuff. your music. Yeah, yeah. Let's shift gears hard. Yeah, I want to talk about your music because we just were, we just listened to the album oh. and we were really excited. Yeah. We were excited to, to listen to it. So you just released it as planet nine and it's your first, sort of major foray into music. Mm -hmm. Have you always been interested in creating music or is this a new interest? I, um, no, I've sang on a number of soundtracks for movies, but weirdly they're all mostly country songs. So there's Okay. (laughs) Uh, Drac loves to sing country. Maybe you guys should get together. (laughs) I love country music. We're going to talk about that later because I want to hear what, like Patsy Cline, Patsy Buck Owens, like but newer, like you know, yeah. I just, I there's something about it that really suits my voice more so than electronic music. But when I was ten, mm-hmm. you know, when I went to that military school, I hated the world so much at that point. I was like, I don't like this planet. I'm going to create my own. So I invented my own planet, and it would come out of the ceiling at school, and it would encircle me, and it would be like this hard orb, and nobody could penetrate it, and nobody could hurt me. Um, because they treated me, I looked like a boy, I guess. I didn't know that, but they called me freak. They threw things at me. They tried to run me over with their trucks with guns in them. I mean, it was like farmers shot at me with rock salt every day. Like it was crazy. America was like full on redneck. And I was like, not cool. Um, coming from Florence, Italy, not fun. Very, very different. So I created my own planet and it was beautiful. And I used to wonder what sounds would be on this planet or you know, if there was sound or the colors or the light, things like that. And then like our imaginary friends, we forget about them. But then six years ago, um, when they made Pluto not a planet, it's because they found planet nine. And I was like, they found my planet. <laughs> and then the next thought, which makes no sense, I was like, I must make music for my planet. <laughs> And, and that's so I, yeah. yeah, and I get it. I recorded the album um, really at the same time I wrote my book. It was like, it's what helped save my brain from my book. And I wanted, also I raced, I raced my car, um, or when I was in LA, I did, on a track called Irwindale Speedway. And when you hit a certain mile per hour, in, in a, say in a Porsche that goes very fast, it feels like you're about a foot off the ground and you're flying. And I was like, what music can make me feel like that I'm about a foot off the ground? And I couldn't find any, so I figured I was just going to do it. And that all kind of happened at the same time. 
And so I just set about going around the world. Literally, I knocked on this one producer's door in Biarritz in southern France and was like, uh, you're a legend. You produced my favorite Daft Punk song. Uh, please do this with me. I have no credentials or credits other than I know I can turn this shit out. And so I did. And um, it was funny because I was so rad. It's so rad. Yeah. And it was also like, you know, guys, like for so long, it wasn't my voice. Nobody knew my voice. And I changed my Mm. voice for every role I did. Like Charm's a lot higher pitched. Yeah, Paige. And then Courtney's a lot lower. Well, what do you think? You're the shadow. We're the sun. You know what I mean? So I I messed with that a lot. So this really, between my book, which was written, or the audio book, which you can hear me narrate, Planet Nine is really my thoughts, my voice. And for an artist, just imagine you guys never getting to think your own thoughts when you go to work for those 12 to 17 hours for years. Yeah. And I'm not saying poor me. It was just it was just an incident. I was never trying to be an actor, so I was discovered. So that's kind of also why I never had that, like, I'm an actor. I want to be famous. And great respect mm. for true actors. Do I think I am one? No. Um, Interesting. I think I'm gifted, just luckily. But it was also not something that challenged my brain. It utilizes emotion and discipline and stamina and professionalism and the ability for me to leave my body and let something else come over. And I always did everything to the best of my ability, but I knew my abilities were actually better in other disciplines. Hmm. Well, you mentioned the whole this whole idea of creating like this um, world of your imagination that's not only your armor, but it's a place where you can feel how you want to feel and creating the soundtrack, which is a, which is an idea that I absolutely love. Um, and then you also mentioned about changing your voice and pitches to fit your characters. And there's something about the way that this Planet Nine was recorded. And if I'm getting this right, it's at 432 hertz as opposed to the yeah. traditional 440. Can you yeah. tell people what's up with that? Because I found this really fascinating. I love this part. Yeah, I was really interested in um, sound. I've always been really, sound design in movies is like some of my favorite part of movie making. Um, we do stuff in the sound mix in movies to make you react a certain way, not just with loud noises or explosions, but literally in the mix, a frequency. So the 432 frequency is what advertisements on the radio are mixed on. Have you ever been in an Uber and you're like, yo, driver, why aren't you changing the station? We're listening to five minutes of commercials, right? Yeah. And, um, but he doesn't seem to notice it or she doesn't notice it. It's kind of a strange thing. They do that on purpose. So they mix most songs on radio and the Nazis use this. They use the 440 hertz because it's agitating. It actually has a frequency that's kind of, kind of like for me, it feels like someone's knocking on my head repeatedly with their hand and it's annoying. Um, and then that's so when they go to the 432 hertz on the commercial, your brain is more likely to relax and listen to it. So I thought, what if I flip? What if I make Planet Nine? And it said, you know, the legend of 432 is that it massages the left and the right brain. My other supposition was that personally, I think everybody should smoke weed. But hey, what do I know? But I was <laughs> like, if these motherfuckers won't take drugs, maybe I can make something that'll make them feel high in a different way. There you go. And, and it works when people, when like the, the way I say, like, it's a concept album. So it's meant, to, you can listen to the songs individually, but I would recommend the first couple of times, like really from beginning to end with your eyes shut, with headphones on. And then cause it's only 38 minutes and you go away. And by the end, I swear on my life, you feel like you're about a foot off the ground and quite high. It's a very unique thing. And I really believe that's the 432 hertz. 
and it's really a soothing album. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I don't know what people would expect that they expected a more angry or a more outspoken yep, album is. from you, but this was so melodic. Tranquil. And, yeah. And there's a couple what? bangers on there too. So you can have some bops and bangers, but also be melodic and hypnotic, quite hypnotic. Yeah. I had a hypnotherapist I went to once and I really liked the rhythm of his speech patterns. So I kind of took it for how I rhythmically spoke in some of these tracks and sang, but more in the speaking parts. So I like using my voice, like sometimes speaking, sometimes singing. And it's like, you know, um, Green Gold, one of my songs, it's really just like my message for the world. Like the chorus of that is only here to paint color on the sun, only here to see the fire run. Because I believe that's literally as humans, we're meant to like live the biggest experience that we can emotionally. And they take away by labeling us and making us small and stealing who we are. They take away our paintbrushes. They take away our ability to paint colors or feel the fire in our body or even feel rage. You know, you're not supposed to, especially if you're a woman. Like righteous anger moves mountains sometimes. But like, it's not just that. It's like all of our emotional paint boxes. And like, we're here to have the biggest experience. So for me, lyrics and writing is incredibly important. And, um, and then one of the tracks is called Lonely House. And that was, you know, kind of what we were talking about. Like when you were asking me about quarantine, like, what's it like? And it was kind of a lonely house, right? Um, but it was like, I say on that one, I'm like, are you lonely on your planet? Are you lonely on the fringe? And it goes from there and, and people are lonely. You know, everybody, it's universal. And people also want more and they want to feel and be different. And I didn't want to, I didn't need, like, I'm not trying to be a pop star. I didn't put songs on there like, you can dance. Certainly people do. And I'm going to get some dope Ibiza remixes. Hey. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yo, I want to dance on the sand in Ibiza at 6 in the morning to a massive EDM remix of my music. That'd be sick. It would lend itself to that too, I yeah. think. So yeah, and I, I want people to like make, so one of the things I'm doing is I'm building a website where people can upload their own um, artwork or visuals that they've shot for Planet Nine based on what they feel about it or see. I made my own oh, visuals like for it, but I want to see what other people have. And, and, and I want to encourage mm -hmm. people, I'm trying to do a thing where they, I bring, I want to bring art out of museums and galleries because they're pretty elitist, especially in America because they're not free. And you get like maybe a kid gets taken there once on a school field trip and never goes again. You know, and art, the way I grew up, yeah, and it, it does a huge disservice because art saves lives. Something that I think we can relate to and maybe a language that we share as the Boulets and you share as yourself is like this idea of like radically expressing because I feel like just, just living in this world today, everything at every turn, people try to tell you to not do mm -hmm. that. That, that is a bad thing to do. And. I don't know, somewhere in your adolescence or at least somewhere in my young adolescence, uh, I felt every person that I looked at that wasn't like me, which was pretty much everybody, tried to crush me, tried to crush yeah, yeah. me and make me, and yeah, and try to make me feel bad about what I thought was beautiful or what I thought, what I was attracted to and all these kind of things. So I really see a little piece of myself in you in that, like radically express and, and not just that, but encourage other people to do that too. Yeah, we have to fight for ourselves, you know, and it sucks because it's like, wow, what would you as, as, as like our, a gay man, what, what could they achieve if they just been left the fuck alone? 
what can a girl achieve if you just leave her the fuck alone? And, or a boy or a straight man and telling them what they have to be. Like, what if you just let me be and stop telling me what I have to be? Right? It's like a huge difference. God, it's a narrow binary language. It sure is. And I agree with you guys. And I'm proud of you for clearly you fought for yourselves. And you fought to be like, no, my instincts are, you know, and if, if I'm going to fall on my sword by my choice, it's going to be mine. Especially in Hollywood, you tell anybody about some great idea. And they're like, whoa, whoa I don't know where that is. Oh, it's so annoying. And I'm like, hey, dream killer, why don't you shut the fuck up? Which I think I said to an agent once. <laughs> I think it might be the motivation because we were never motivated by money. It was always for us. Are we happy doing what we're doing? And then if we're happy doing what we're doing, we don't care whether we're rich or poor or whatever. And of course it's great when it works out, but I think some people start the other way and they're like, how am I going to get rich? from Yeah. This? And, yeah. and that's a lot. In that, then, yeah. Then you have to start listening to people, but when you don't care what they think because you don't need what they have, it frees you up a lot. Well, listen, Rose, you have been amazing. I think you've given listeners so many new things to think about. And um, whether it be like your book or other movies, hopefully we'll see you again on the screen. Um, but now we've left people with Planet Nine to listen to. And it, and it's like a very interesting thing because I don't know that it's, it's what people would expect. I make art. That's what I do. And I make it in different ways than maybe other people do. But I know it works. And I know... You even have people say, this isn't really my style of music, but it heals my anxiety. It's really weird. And I'm like, yeah, it works. I've tested it on like everybody from 10-year-olds to 85-year-olds and everything in between. Um, the 10-year-olds, when I played it for them, their dad, my friend, who was the first uh, gay couple allowed to adopt in Ireland, it's his three children. And he asked them after listening, after they closed their eyes and, and, and did that, uh, he said, how did that make you feel? And I looked at them and one of them said, after thinking, says safe. One of them said home and one of them said free. Wow. And I was like, that's the only review I ever need. That is and the I only know, review I ever know, made. That's true. Yeah. It's a, it's really a beautiful album. Thank so you. thank you for sharing it with us thank and thank you. you for joining us. It's really fun chatting with you and uh, we appreciate you coming on and talking with us. And I'm going to talk to Darren later about this. Yeah. <laughs> what if Courtney, what if like actually Courtney Alice Shane winds up on a Kardashians episode? I love, I love it. it too. There's a lot of crossover possibilities <laughs> is what I'm saying. And think of who she could For kill sure. with a jawbreaker next. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lovelies. Thank you, right, darling. There, and by thank the way, for joining us. Maybe I did already. I can't remember. But I just, I love what you're doing. And keep pushing everything. Keep pushing at boundaries, but with a big smile. You know what? Like when you twist that knife in, do it for yourself and do it for others. All right. We're going to take a little break, change the mood. And when we come back, we're going to jump right into the Boulet Brothers Creatures of the Night Creature Feature Movie Review. Arda Wiggs has been serving looks in the drag and costume community since 2009. Their reputation in the wig world is well known for providing luscious, thick, snatchingly good styles that turn heads and ensure you are serving the most devilish of looks. With over 100 colors and 80 styles to choose from, they're sure to have something to make you scream. Use the code ARDABOULET10 for 10% off at arda-wigs.com and treat yourself to something truly hair-raising. 
right, uglies. Welcome back and welcome to the Belay Brothers Creatures of the Night Creature Feature Movie Review. In addition to our special guest this episode, we also have a special reviewer joining us as well. And in honor of having Rose McGowan on, we thought it would be a great time to bring in our good friend and guest reviewer, director and writer Darren Stein. Darren, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. So good to be here. Oh, so happy to have you, Ms. Stein. Ms. with a Z. <laughs> Ms. with a Z, just so everybody knows that. <laughs> How are you doing? Fantastic. It's it's Friday. It's, it's another Friday in quarantine. Yes. Another week I'm down. Sure. Months <laughs> are just flying by. Summer is arriving. Very. Sick. So I want to just quickly, for those of you at home that may not know, as we discussed earlier, Rose McGowan was the star of the cult classic Jawbreaker, which Darren wrote and directed. And uh, Darren, we just talked with Rose about her idea for a Jawbreaker sequel. And it was actually a good idea. Do you recall this? I do. We we Rose and I recently did an Insta Live, and she and she talked about it. Um, but she's not wanting to act anymore, so I'm not sure how that's going to work. But I would very much be down to work with Rose again on on anything. Oh, I'm so. Well, she failed to tell us that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm so glad to hear that because I, honestly, she was selling it to me. Like we had an impromptu pitch meeting, and I was like, "Give her some money. Like, let's make this happen." <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was kind of an interesting concept. I, I liked that. We told her that we would tell you that we vouch for okay. it. So here we are. Well, I love it. I love it too. I think it's great. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm also working though on a Jawbreaker musical limited series. So you know, one, one thing at a time, right? Yeah, and do you, can you tell? Any tell the listeners any details about that or no? It's actually still in the pitching phase, so we're not we're not completely like uh, engaged with it yet. But it's 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 based on the, the stage musical, which has really incredible music um, in it, and it's a it's basically um, the movie, but you know musicalized. So it would have it would be a teenage cast. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be like the girls from the movie. It would be a new a new set of girls. Sure. I mean, I think I think people from coast to coast and all around the world would be super excited to see that reimagining of Jawbreaker as a musical. It would be so exciting because it's got such a huge cult following. I know people would be throwing their money at you to see it. Oh, not only that, but we, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but we got a little peek of the music and it's really good. And you were working on that for a long time. Yeah. Well, no one ever told me that musicals take literally decades to get, to get made. They're, they're sort of a, a huge under, undertaking. Um, so I'm very excited and I've always loved musicals and it's a fun way to explore the film again. You know, I mean, Ro- Rose had that idea for a Jawbreaker sequel like a decade ago. You know, we could have made that. Oh, wow. And this is back when there was like straight to video re, uh, releases of bring it on films like bring it on and what have you you know american pie mm-hmm. and i just kind of wasn't excited about the idea of a direct-to-video jawbreaker sequel you know so i never really engaged with it but i think enough times passed that we can we can explore it in all kinds of ways i think it's a really good idea also i wanted to mention for people at home that don't know um darren is actually the patron saint of the boy brothers dragula and a lot of people don't know this but you've done more behind the scenes for the show than anyone has and i, I just want people to know that because a lot of times we just talk quietly and we work together and people don't realize how involved in the show you are so i just want to say thank you for everything you've helped us with with the show well thanks i mean i love what you do. I love your vision. And as a little gay kid, you know, the collision of horror and glamour was sort of like my, my sweet spot, you know? And so when you guys came up to me, I remember when you called me and you were saying, we're making the show, it's, we would love to hear your thoughts. And 
I was just sort of excited that it was going to exist. So I, I just think it's fantastic. Well, that's because you're you're a Transylvanian too. Like we yeah, all come from yeah. the same kind of like Rocky Horror universe, and you know, it, you're like our sister witch. I, I've called you that before. So, and it's true. in the video you shared recently on social media of you doing Rocky Horror when you were how old were you in that video? Oh boy, I was probably I would say eleven or I would say ten or eleven. And you knew like all the lyrics, like you were acting it out and singing it and like the whole thing. I was one of those precocious kids who knew they were gay. Different, very, you, know, you know these gays who are like, oh, "I want to come out till I was thirty-five. I'm a late bloomer." Well, I, I sort of always was out in a strange way. And Rocky Horror, as soon as I saw the poster with the lips and the the dripping blood, which is your logo, I mean, I, I, yeah, of course we're gonna, our worlds are gonna collide and we're gonna be sisters. You know? Yeah, it's kind of like a, a natural attraction to create this sort of dark queer content. It's a specific kind of queerness. And I think you're right. I think when Swan said Transylvanian, that's what it is. You're, you're either a Transylvanian or you're not. And people who are, <laughs> they sort of know they, they sort of know what that means. And people that are wear tuxedos <laughs> with pointy birthday yeah, hats. And, and, and like weird glasses and dance funny. I mean, that's what you do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you're not a main character, that is. <laughs> then you get your own costume. Otherwise, it's tuxedo for you. <laughs> Throw a little glitter on it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to bring you in and do some movie reviews with you because we always have so much fun when we hang out and talk. So I was like, let's bring Darren on and review some movies. So... um are you guys ready? Yeah, let's let's begin. Um, the, we we looked at two movies this week, and the first one is called The Wretched. It was written and directed by the Pierce Brothers. It was released on May first of this year. Um, it's now available on Amazon Prime, and this movie has a kind of a unique story because it was released during the pandemic. It went right to video on demand, and it was released into a number of drive-in theaters across the country. And because of that, and through this weird twist of fate, it was actually the number one movie in the country for a few weeks which is kind of crazy for a low-budget horror film. I love that. I think it's great. I think it's a fantastic pandemic horror moment. Yeah, definitely to be remembered. So what did you guys think? I, I thought it was fine. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I thought it was sort of like, gave me all those 80s feels from films like uh, Fright Night or Disturbia meets kind of like The Witch or Hereditary. Um, but, you know, it's 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 it was it was not necessarily something I would, you know, get excited about or watch again. But I had a good time with it. I think, too, it, it did feel a little WB Sabrina teen horror for me. Like, it, it felt like 90s horror light, but I wasn't convinced that that was necessarily intentional. Like, I feel like if, it, if this had come out after I Know What You Did Last Summer, as opposed to coming out today, it would have been more understandable. But it seemed sort of out of place to me. Yeah, it almost didn't know what it wanted to be. That's how I felt about it. I'm like, it was kind of pulling me in like three different directions. I do want to double down on Darren's comment, though, about Fright Night, because I was totally getting that vibe, like what was going on with the neighbors and kind of watching through the through the sheer curtains. And it, it brought me very much to like that vampire house was like the neighbor was kind of like, um, you know, watching what was happening. And I think that there was another very strong homage to much later in the movie, like kind of toward the end. Um, it was a. Nightmare on Elm Street 2, like Freddy's Revenge moment, where that witch character literally pops through the skin and basically comes out of the one of the characters exactly the same way that Freddy did, um, you know, in Nightmare on Elm Street, which I enjoyed, of course. Yeah, but it was missing, I think, the, the subversiveness of Elm Street 2. You know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure. Like everything else about it, she, you know, I just felt, it felt familiar, you know, like things we had seen before. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I felt that the soundtrack, you know, it kind of had the, it, right in the beginning, like within the first couple of minutes, there was these two like soft rock songs that 
I felt like it just made it feel like a teen horror drama. And I don't know that that, you know, again, I don't know that that was the intention of the director. It felt like it was trying to be an 80s or 90s film and, you know, it kind of got lost in translation, you know, because mm-hmm. it was engaging some of the more, I don't know, headier tropes from The Witch. It, it wasn't scary. It didn't have the fear factor that I sort of need in a horror film. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to suggest to all horror content creators out there, the neck crane sound effect, please, please stop. Please stop when you see a monster and they make that cryptoid kind of bone snapping. So I'm like, <laughs> please stop. Stop. For God's bone sake. Snapping is not an excuse for, you know, it's not going to, you know, it's creep- creepiness or scariness. It just sounds like another effect that's being used too much. It was so effective when the first time we heard it, but it's been quite a while now, you know? (laughs) That that sort of deer skull mask she wears. Yeah. Not something that got me excited. Really? Yeah. Uh, There was so much cool witch lore like Mm -hmm. weaved into this, but I think the whole thing kind of got a little bit lost in like this sea of like overambition. There was, you know, she was underground. She would whisper in your ear and the blood would come out there. You know, it was seducing all these children, changing people's memories, sticks in place of the baby. Like, I think that there was a lot of research and they said they they wanted to make a really cool like witch movie, but it it just kind of needed a lot more focus. It also feels like we're spoiled because of the movie The Witch, which I think is absolutely brilliant. I'm, I mean, mm. I'm a fan of that film. And the, that film was so hardcore. I mean, the baby isn't just disappearing with a bunch of sticks. It's getting mashed up into some witch potion. <laughs> some witch paste. Yeah, she's bathing it. It's like a fa- baby facial, body, body, hey, body rub. Don't knock it until you try it. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Well, that yeah, you're right though. That when I think of like that is a witch movie, yeah. and you're yeah. like, yes, that is a witch. This witch is scary. You know, I believe this, but and I don't know. I wonder too if it was maybe overly scored. I wonder that that seems kind of a '90s element too to like overly score the entire movie, and which certainly isn't the trend with the horror movies that we all seem to like today. Yeah, definitely a different vibe. If I was a person that said I need to see kind of every witch movie that's out there, then I would definitely watch The Wretched, but uh, you know, I would probably I wouldn't watch it twice. I, I wasn't very excited when I was watching it. I thought the, the script was kind of a little flimsy and weird, like some of the characters. It was almost just like too cheesy for me. Um, I did get off on a lot of the witch moments, uh, even some of the lore stuff that they were looking through an old book and it said something like, you know, dark mother born from root rock and tree. And I'm like, ooh, I can get into this. But then the way that it was actually handled, I was like, wah, wah, you know, it just didn't didn't give me what i wanted this is like a a get high slumber party with your friends kind of movie let's say that right for sure the next film we decided to watch together was called becky it's in drive-in theaters now and on demand directed by carrie mernyan and jonathan millot and the basic story is about a girl who has been brought to a weekend getaway by her father in an effort for the two to connect and of course it all goes sideways when a group of escaped convicts happen upon the house and terror ensues um what do you guys think what how did you feel about becky i loved becky i mean i loved becky i thought it was stylish and campy and like really gory and kind of satisfying and like tons of fun across the board this movie is not for everybody but it was definitely for me darren i didn't love becky i thought it was okay (laughs) (laughs) it's just fun to say it i appreciated becky herself i thought she was a badass I, wa- I love some of the vicious violence. 
I like that it was doing something somewhat new with that sort of revenge trope. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't find it scary. Kevin James, I just didn't think was that convincing um, as the, the sort of white supremacist mm. killer type dude. And I had some issues. But 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 it, but it was it was entertaining. I think Becky was kind of part home invasion, part revenge, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. where the hunters kind of become the hunted. It gets flip flopped. It was very people under the stairs for me. Once fool kind of like flips the script on his captors, that's what I was getting like kind of the whole time in the back of my mind. Yeah, no, I think it's it's, it's super enjoyable. I mean, my issue was just the filmmaking. Um, First of all, the score. I mean, at first, it's like this cool synth score that you, I was like, oh, I'm going to get into this. And then at one point on the score, I hear this weird inhaling through nostril sound. Like, <laughs> mm. it was like maybe that was a mistake. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's part of the, percussion, the percussive nature of the score. But I think they were going for a modern synth version of kill, 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 hide, 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 but with a, with, with a weird breathing. Um, mm. It didn't work for me. And then, it, and then it just sort of aspired to Mandy level theatrics. Yeah, it did with a synth score that I just felt like the film didn't earn. So it wasn't mm. giving me it. I also, I also had an issue with some of the gore, but I can get into that in a second. I mean, I, I want to hear what, what Drac has to say. Uh, uh, Ms. Stein is here to read. So Drac, what do you think? And then- <laughs> well, you know, I think it was towards the end of the movie where the main character, cause I don't want to spoil it, but you know, towards the end of the movie where the main character sort of changes over that I found, found myself liking it more just because, you know, I haven't seen a home invasion movie that has this sort of twist to it. So it was unique, I would say. I also agree that some of the synth music I really liked. And there was a few other choices that I felt like to me, when you get into these home invasion, uh, situations, less is more. Like less music to me makes it more believable, which then makes it more scary. Now that just works for me because I, you know, I like that real life gritty sort of feel. One of the things that kind of bothered me about the movie is I felt like the criminal seemed too casual about the amount of time it was taking to get what they were after. Like if you escape custody and murdered someone on the road nearby and had a whole household hostage, I think the antagonists would have felt more desperate and anxious. So it made it kind of hard mm. to believe because it seemed like they were so casual and the day was going on into the night. <laughs> like I'm like, you're not making afraid sandwiches the cops are coming. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, what's happening? So that part was a little unbelievable. Um, but I did think it was a really unique take on a home invasion story and a revenge story. Now, what about the, the gore that you mentioned? Cause I thought that was part of the fun. Well, like you guys, I'm a huge, you know, horror fanatic have been since I was a kid you know, reading Fangoria, love the gory pages. But in this, like, okay, you know, cutting cutting an eye out and then you're just sort of lingering on sort of cutting the eye out. It became so graphic that it wasn't even scary to look at for me. I felt I've, it became fake and kind of overstayed its welcome to me. That's how I felt about it. I feel like it was almost intentional because when you're backing a boat into, a, you know, uh a big guy in the water who can't swim and you're just like shredding him with a, a motorboat motor. It's kind of, how can that be taken seriously? No, I didn't mind the shredding scene. I thought that was done really well. <laughs> There's another gore scene where I don't know, someone gets knife or something and then they like hang on this like squirt of blood that just looked like not the best practical effect. So sure. I, I, think I was just bumped on some of the, um, I don't know, the, the, the amateurish practical effects that, that, I mean, they weren't totally amateurs, but they overstayed their welcome to me. I just do you think it should have leaned into it being campier or move further away? I would have just 
been more judicious on the editing of the gore sequences. They pulled me out of the film. Mm-hmm. They they just and they, and they weren't they they weren't executed in a way that I felt deserved to be holding on them that long. It wasn't like yeah. Even though I'm a fan of Becky, I have to agree with you there. There was a specific one where I mean I feel like we're spilling all the tea on this, but whatever. You know, you could literally see into someone's skull and the brain and the blood and stuff that's on it. But I felt like they gave us too much because it got to the point where I was kind of like kind of able to dissect a little bit what I was looking at and it, it didn't necessarily like, resonate as real. That's a plastic brain sherry. <laughs> exactly. <right>? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I can go to Halloween town too. Okay. <laughs> but you guys know that the lead, the lead Nazi dude is Kevin James from that famous sitcom. Who he, he seemed familiar, but I don't know what, what's the sitcom. And do you know what it's called? It's called King of Queens. Yes. Oh, wait. He's also Paul Blart mall cop. Oh my god! What? Oh my Girl, god! That's mall cop. Huh? No, mall yes. cop was the killer. <laughs> yes. Okay, I didn't even know. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Now, now you love Becky. What? I didn't say that. <laughs> no. But, but to me, even even knowing Kevin James played the killer, I watched the trailer first. I'm like, oh wow, Kevin James really looks transformed. I'm going to really enjoy this. I'm yeah. Interested to see what he does with this role. And yeah, he was, he was giving it his all, but guess what? I just was not ever, I just never found him scary, never found his henchmen threatening. And I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of agree too. There was something of an undertone, uh, in this film that I did like, and I, and I really like sort of like symbolism or subliminal ideas interspersed in a script. And it was this idea of, of family and kind of also being animalistic. Um, Becky gets cornered at one point and this is really where she kind of crosses over and she sort of literally like growls and bursts out with like this kind of like animal aggression. And I kind of feel like she crosses over into like her, you know, almost like her, animal self and she puts on that spirit hat because that's what they're called and it's like a it's like a fox hat or something every kill she does in this movie she has that hat on and she even takes it off for the scenes in between but then she puts it back on as if she's kind of like putting on sort of like her animal spirit and then she goes out and she gets super violent and destructive and i kind of picked up on that and i really liked it um there's also close-ups on her face that kind of feel uncomfortable and you notice that her eyes are super dilated and it really looks like um and and these are in daylight scenes so her her pupils would be small but in these shots her pupils are huge and it's very much like a predatory uh big cat i mean it resonates with this like animalistic intensity it's on purpose i love what you're saying i i thought becky was the best part of the film and i thought she had a you know which in training quality, like mm-hmm. the key, the key that he's after that the Kevin James character is after is like this, like the key to some white supremacist, I don't know, bunker. I wasn't quite sure what that key led to. Who knows? I guess you have to watch Becky too, Darren. Uh, <laughs> Becky's revenge, bitch. I'm ready. Um, <laughs> but when they, whenever the key appears in the film, there's like this, the score becomes kind of like, you know, magical and supernatural. So I was waiting I was wondering what, if there was a, some kind of supernatural connotation to that strange medallion key. I thought the same thing. I did too. For a minute, I was like, she's about to exhibit like some kind of power, almost like Firestarter or something. Like I thought we were going to have like a moment like that because I didn't know what to expect. I do want to add a note too for uh, other horror directors out there just because it's a personal tick of mine. Do not kill a dog in your horror movie. I hate that so bad. I'm like, just do not. If I, when I see a dog in a horror movie, I'm like, just don't do that. It just, it just gets my go a little. I don't know what it is. I'm just like, can we just not, can we just skip the animal thing? You know? Yeah. 
definitely unpleasant. Yeah, and it was, it's all the way you present it too. It's like you know, like you said, in the witch, there are animals and uh, you know, violence towards animals and things. It's just presented differently. There's something about just the the like, hey, I'm going to shoot this dog kind of thing. I just I don't know. I'm not into it. You know, we're immersed in this like saturated world of these supremacists. Even even like Kevin James machinations when he's trying to sort of like manipulate his cohorts into like, you're my son, you must do this. It felt very like kind of like you could read it. It just felt like it was like on the nose script wise. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's a great observation. I think overall, both movies are definitely worth checking out. Um, again, you can see Becky at drive-in theaters everywhere and streaming on demand now. Uh, Darren, thank you so much for joining us and watching some movies with us. It was a lot of fun. I always love to talk to you guys. See you guys. Yeah. Oh, we love to have you on too. This is going to have to be the first of many visits with you here at creatures of the night. I agree. All right, so for everyone else, it's time for the Boulet Brothers, Creatures of the Night, Hauntings of History. Now, for this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life, documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown. In today's haunting, we'll be discussing a serial murderer who tore through a sleepy college town and left five dead in a blood-soaked killing spree. The Gainesville Ripper. Over the course of four days in August 1990, the Gainesville Ripper brutally murdered five college students and posed their bodies in macabre positions to be discovered by those unlucky enough to find them. The Gainesville Ripper, born Danny Rowling, began his string of gruesome murders with the double homicide of roommates Sonia Larson and Christina Powell. On August 24, 1990, Rowling entered the apartment that Larson and Powell shared, finding Powell asleep on the living room couch. Rowling stood over Powell, watching her sleep for an hour before going upstairs to find Sonia Larson asleep in her room. The Gainesville Ripper stabbed Larson to death in her bed before returning to the downstairs living room where he murdered Christina Powell by stabbing her in the back five times. Following the murder, Rowling provocatively posed the bodies of the young girls before taking a shower in their home, cleaning his victim's blood off of himself before leaving. The Gainesville Ripper would waste no time before finding his next victim, breaking into the apartment of Krista Hoyt using a screwdriver and the same knife used to murder his victims. At approximately 11 a.m. on August 25, 1990, Hoyt entered her apartment and was overpowered by Rowling, who had waited in her darkened bedroom for hours. Rowling stabbed her in the back several times before cutting her stomach open and decapitating her corpse, posing her body on the bed with her head facing the door. When later questioned about the posing of his victims, Rowling stated that positioning Hoyt's face towards the door would just add to the shock of whoever found her body. On August 27, 1990, just 48 hours later, Danny Rowling broke into the apartment of Manny Tabuda and Tracy Pauls using the same tools he had used two days prior. Rowling immediately went to the first bedroom he could find and murdered Manny Tabuda by stabbing him to death. Hearing the struggle, Tracy Pauls locked herself in her bathroom in an attempt to hide from the serial killer. Going room to room in the apartment, the Gainesville Ripper came to the bathroom last, kicked the door open, and found Pauls inside. Rowling proceeded to murder Tracy Pauls in the same way as his previous victims, stabbing her before posing her body in a twisted tableau. While the Gainesville Ripper's murder spree ended with the deaths of Tabuda and Pauls, the horror of the events haunted the University of Florida as stories about the slaying spread throughout news outlets. The Associated Press quoted a junior at the school saying, 
We slept with steak knives last night. We're sleeping in groups and in shifts. We're afraid to leave. Two weeks after the serial murders, Danny Rowling was arrested after crashing a vehicle in an attempt to evade police after an armed robbery. DNA evidence quickly matched the bloody tools in Rowling's possession to those used to mutilate his victims, and the prosecution began building their case. On April 20th, 1994, the first day of the trial four years after the vicious killings, Danny Rowling was sentenced to death after pleading guilty to murdering and sexually assaulting his victims with no motive. On October 25th of that same year, the Gainesville Ripper was executed by lethal injection. In 1995, aspiring writer Kevin Williamson would directly credit the Gainesville Ripper as the inspiration for the plot of his latest script sold to Dimension Films. The movie, entitled Scream, would feature a small town terrorized by a serial killer over the span of just a few days. Directed by Wes Craven, Scream would go on to be a critical and commercial success, making $173 million at the box office, setting the record for the highest-grossing slasher film until 2018's Halloween. Just as the Gainesville Ripper's victims were murdered, Scream's ghost face stabs his victims and poses their bodies in macabre scenes. The opening of the film shows Drew Barrymore hung from a tree with her entrails dragging on the ground for her mother to find, a direct reference to Krista Hoyt's gruesome mutilation and the grisly display. During the investigation of the Gainesville Ripper and in the plot of Scream, there was a wrongly accused first suspect who would be cleared of their charges when new evidence came to light. Additionally, when the killers in Scream finally reveal their plot, they deny any sort of motive, just as Danny Rowling did during his trial. As one of the killers put it, it's a lot scarier when there's no motive, Sid. While the supernatural and paranormal often inspire hauntings that ripple throughout society, the real-life horrors wrought by the Gainesville Ripper have haunted generations of moviegoers since their film adaptation in 1996. A marauder with no motive, brutally mutilating his victims in the safety of their own homes, then turning their bodies into perverse displays simply to shock people may seem like a plot ripped straight from the guts of Hollywood. But sometimes, the reality of the hauntings of history are enough to make us scream. Oh, I love that story. So interesting. So crazy, right? It really is. Oh my God. And you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but Scream... There was a few other copycat murders that happened after Scream's success that people were blaming Scream for. Like, you know, oh, really? Yeah, people in the media and like uh, mother associations and things were sort of blaming Scream. And they actually got the Ghostface Killer mask and got the voice changer <gasps> and everything. Yeah, there's like, I think there's at least three examples of copycat murders. And some people actually tied Columbine into Scream. Oh, you know what? I actually, I read about that. I think it was Scream 3. They toned down a bunch of the violence and went with a more kind of like uh, dark comedy route mm-hmm. because of Columbine and all the uh, the murders that you're talking about. I remember that. Yeah. Well, you know, it really revitalized horror for a new generation. And it was young people that you could relate to as opposed to this mysterious older figure like Michael Myers or Freddy or something. These were like kids killing other kids in these high school settings. And I don't know, you know. They, Without much of a motive, I mean, that's like a little like eerily comparative to what's going on with, in the movie, you know, mm-hmm. like having no motive. There is no reason to not kill. It's just exciting or more shocking, which is just wild to think about kind of socially at the time. What do you guys think of the idea of taking a story like that and turning it into something that becomes a Hollywood blockbuster? What do you think the the morality of that is? I don't know. A part of me thinks that it's a little bit morally corrupt to do that, to profit off of the deaths of these people. Um, but at the same time, 
I love Scream. It's one of my favorite movies, as I said earlier. Like it's it's just fantastic, and the adaptation is incredible. And sometimes the truth is scarier than fiction. So I'm I, a little torn. I'd say it's a matter of creativity, and I don't need to feel. I don't mean to feel or sound like detached about the source material, which may be the acts of a serial killer. But if your art is to create these horror movies for entertainment and for intrigue and just to kind of, you know, wildly spark people's imagination, but do it in a way that's kind of scary, uh, the source material is valid, in my opinion. I always wonder about the families because you know when there's real life murders like this there are people left behind this was someone's you know the victims and the killers are someone's sister mother brother whatever and Uh i always think of the people left behind and what must they how dark must they think society is when they see something that has probably pain that will never leave them turned into a huge hollywood blockbuster well isn't that kind of the genius in scream uh, the original where, you know, Sidney Prescott's mom is brutally murdered and then uh, Gail Weathers, which incredible name, by the way, uh, <laughs> you know, Gail Weathers writes that book. And that's one of the I mean, I wonder if that's kind of a, a meta way that Williamson kind of touched on his own, you know, writing about this murder. Like Sidney is obviously fucked up because of Gail's book. So I wonder if he if he thought about that. Has Wait, to, absolutely. Yeah, you're saying he addressed the issue of the families and the fallout of this kind of exposure in the movie itself. So it's like meta, meta, movie in a movie kind of thing. Absolutely. Yes. But still, there are real life <laughs> yeah. people left over that even if you're addressing it, they must be like, um, you know what I mean? Like, I don't no, know. Totally. I always think, but you know, so how many good movies, TVs and everything are inspired by real life crime like that. But I just always wonder a little bit about that. Well, I think that was a really fascinating kind of hauntings of history. I didn't expect it to go where it went. And maybe maybe that's testament to this idea of what you're talking about, Drac, that it may have been hurtful for the families and the victims of the families uh, or the families of the victims, you know, if it was such a direct correlation. But I feel like the story that I just heard from Ian about the Gainesville Ripper um, was distorted and changed enough to the ghost face killer of the scream franchise that it may not have felt so much like what had happened to the ones that they loved i just wonder what you guys think about it i'm not sort of placing my judgment on it one way or the other because hi obviously so much of art is influenced by real life but you know in situations like this that are at least relative it's not new but it's you know people could still be living from that situation i always wonder like what do they think about that you do know in ho- the original Halloween, Michael Myers posed his corpses as well, his victims. Uh, Kevin Williamson also talked about his inspirations as being Halloween, the original. And he talks about that in the movie, too, where it's like, oh, uh, scary movies don't make killers. They just make them more creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like he was kind of de- he was drawing on those inspirations and kind of like you mentioned at the beginning of this you know, copycat killers then took their inspiration from it. And who knows? I mean, maybe we'll start seeing a serial killer with knives for fingers and I'll get to live my nightmare on Elm Street fantasy, but who knows? <laughs> well, listen, once again, thank you for that haunting of history and the story of the Gainesville Ripper. Um, Drac, are we going to take a break right now or are we going to go right into the listener questions? I think we can go right into listener questions. And I want to thank everyone out there who's been writing in. We have tons of questions. We're trying to get to as many of them as we can. But today, uh, we're only going to do a few for time's sake. So do you want to start with a verse on Swan? Sure. Uh, we took a question from Brent and his question was... If you had the chance to take over an existing horror movie franchise, which would it be and why? 
There's so many good options out there. Obviously, I would automatically say Halloween. However, I am so thrilled with the new Halloween and the way Blumhouse has handled it that I don't think I would want to take it over now because I think they're doing a great <laughs> job with it. And I was so scared. I was like, oh, please don't suck. And it didn't. It was great. And it was great. They're doing things that I would want to do to make it special, like bringing back people from the original, like uh, Kyle Richards and, you know, people that were actually in the original Halloween, which is something I would do. So I think that's great. The only thing, the only thing, and I really want to ask Ryan Turek, who's the producer of Halloween about is why they did not bring back Danielle Harris. Danielle Harris. I knew you were going to go because it's, they made it a fresh story, but with the legacy characters intact. And I just felt like, and because Jamie Lee Curtis does have a daughter and a granddaughter in the new, the Blumhouse Halloween what a perfect opportunity. And they're like, well, maybe it would confuse people because she was in Halloween 4, 5, and 6. But, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis was in a couple of them too and they still sure. used her. So I'm like, I feel like they just could have found a way to do it. Um, but I think in light of that, I might pick Nightmare on Elm Street. Really? Yeah. I kind of would love to get my hands on Nightmare on Elm Street and just reinterpret that entire story Freddie and everything that he does and just create a new universe and a new character based off of that idea. I love that idea. And I'm so happy that you went there because that's kind of something that would excite me. And I often, I often talk about, um, the dream warriors and some nightmare on Elm street content. That's some of my favorite moments in horror history. And it's a, you know, it's a fantasy realm. It's, it's the realm of kind of the unexpected. These are things that couldn't really happen to you, which is oftentimes what you say is what you really find scary. So I think it would be a fun project to do together. Yeah, obviously we'd have to do it together. I think the combination of us on the same project just makes magic. So you you would pick that as well then? Well, I, no, I, I wasn't going to say that, but w- when you said it, I thought that it, that would be an cre- incredible opportunity. And now I'm just planning that seed into the universe that maybe we should get our hands on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise oh, and direct right. the Nightmare on Elm Street movie. But I would pick Hellraiser. Okay. It was such a profoundly influential thing that I witnessed when I saw Hellraiser back when I was a little kid. Um, and, you know, it's poised for a reboot right now. Uh, David Bruckner is positioned to direct the upcoming reboot. I'm really excited about it. Uh, but Hellraiser kind of has like everything that Swanthula needs. I feel um, like we need to be in Hellraiser, though, as opposed yeah. to, you know, like I feel like we need to be characters in Hellraiser. I mean, we are characters from Hellraiser. <laughs> Look at our show. Who else sticks needles through people like no? <laughs> oh my god! No, it's just so delicious. There's like demons and fashion and rituals and death. It's just it just kind of has everything. All right, so let's move on to the next question. Uh, this comes from Andrea. Andrea asks, if you could play a role in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, who would it be and why? I mean, it's like Frank, right? Duh. I mean, is that who you would pick? I mean, I feel like we already play a character just like him, kind of in real in real life, right? Well, that's the thing. So, if you got the opportunity, let's say they were remaking it, and you could just do whatever you wanted, who would you pick? I think I would cast us both collectively as one character that rules the Transylvanians, and it would be Frank. I am down for that. Um, honestly, so many of those characters could be fun, though. Like, I played Janet in our. Blay Brothers horror picture show recently and that was a stretch for me but I had fun with it. You were amazing. You were so natural. I don't believe it's a stretch. I think that's like a little hidden part of you that you tapped into perfectly and you were amazing. You know I can do those campy characters and I can actually sing all of her songs quite well I will say if I do say so myself. <laughs> Look if I can't I will say it but I can sing sure. her roles and um, 
yeah, I, I feel like I can do camp, but it is certainly no part of me. It's just not. <laughs> mm. okay. okay. If you say so. Next question is from Salem B. Salem says, hauntings, ghosts, and aliens are obviously huge parts of the show. Swan has already spoken about astrology, but what are your other thoughts, beliefs, and or practices in spirituality and the paranormal? I'd like to maybe just give a little tidbit because I think the fun of listening to the podcast is getting to know us and we kind of reveal a little bit layer after layer. So I don't want to give it to you all at once. Leave that to me. (laughs) (laughs) What's a tidbit of something maybe people wouldn't expect? I think the best way to describe it is, is personally, I'm very open. Um, my mind isn't closed off to, I think a lot of things that people who follow rigid belief systems are, um, if I wanted to shoot out some things that I'd say, yeah, I think some of these ideas hold credence. It'd be like psychic sensitivity and kind of connections between people, uh, the collective dream language that I think we all share like through symbolism. Um, and probably the most pervasive thing that I actually truly believe in my heart outside of like religious constructs or spiritual practices or anything that needs a label. It, it is this, it is the power of willpower and the belief and the power of the individual. I can agree with that. I would like to add, um, I think there's also a connection between people that maybe some people would say is metaphysical um, in the sense that, you know, people that are really close to you, whether it's a partner or a parent or a pet even, that sometimes you can really feel more than what you should from their physical language or audio, you know, like someone... Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I feel like you can, you know more. Like, for example, I've heard you say before a relative has went through something and you'll have a dream about it the same night or you'll wake up from it or you'll have the thought that they're going through it and then they confirm it. So there is something yeah. there that is real. What is it? Who knows? Join us on our new podcast. I was going to say, join us next week as we explore the world of the paranormal and the unknown and the Boulay Brothers psychic adventures. No. <laughs> Anyways, I think that's all the time we have. Thank you once again, everybody, for joining us. If you have questions for us about anything you've heard on the podcast or just anything about the Boulay Brothers Dragula or the Boulay Brothers in general, please feel free to email your questions to creatures at com. And we will see you on the next episode. Thank you once again for joining us. <laughs> the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is hosted and produced by Drac Morda and Swanthula Boulay, featuring co-host Ian DeVogler. Produced by Natasha Pasetta, edited and mixed by Ernesto Hortada, with music by Neuron Spectre.